All right, so when we were all together, I know I had the seniors last night, but when we were all together Wednesday morning, we kind of set up this theme of being an example to a generation, right? And I want to pick up right where we left off, but first I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever wondered at any point in your life, what is the purpose of my life? Like, what was I called? What am I called to do? What was I created for? What's my destiny? You know, destiny is a really fun kind of entertaining word and uh, not exaggerating when I say millions and probably billions of dollars have been made trying to answer that question through online articles, through books and seminars. But I'm going to answer it for you in the first 30 seconds of tonight. Is that okay? And it's going to be straight from the Bible. That would sound really presumptuous if it wasn't coming straight from Scripture. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to Romans chapter 8, one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. The first part of this verse I guarantee is a familiar one for you, but I think the real banger, the real one uh, that should steal the show is the second part of this verse that we usually don't give as much attention. And it says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And I promise almost every person in this room has probably heard this at some point, but it's usually in the context of you're having like a really bad day or something catastrophic has happened in your life. And someone kind of comes up and they don't really know what else to say. And they memorize this verse, maybe back in DBS. They're like, it's all right, man. Like God's going to use this for the good. I'm not sure how, but I know that he's going to because the Bible said he's going to. But here's, here's one of the key parts of this verse is for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Whose purpose? His purpose. Whose purpose? His purpose. Key in here, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, meaning he decided in advance to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Everyone say, I'm called. And those he called, he also justified. Everyone say, I've been justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What is the key part of that verse? What is your purpose if you didn't catch it? Those God foreknew, those he knew in advance, he predestined, meaning he decided in advance before any of us, wherever in our mother's womb, before Adam and Eve, wherever in the garden, God decided from eternity past that his eternal plan and purpose was to raise up a family that looks just like Jesus. Mm. In other words, God does care about who you're going to marry someday. He cares about where you're going to go to college. He cares about the career you're going to have. But all of that comes after this primary purpose and priority of being made to look just like Jesus. So how does God go about actually doing this in our lives? Four things we're going to look at tonight. The first one, I want you to say this with me. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. We must be born again. Everyone say, we must, we must. be born again. You might be asking a very practical question as the religious uh, leader of the day, Nicodemus, asked Jesus in the dead of night. He said, how is it possible for a grown man to reenter his mother's womb and be born again? He was thinking about it very logically. And Jesus told him, I tell you, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But he must be born again of water and spirit. And he was talking about this moment that all of us have to have where we've met Jesus. And I want you to think about nothing else I say tonight is going to matter if this hasn't happened in your life. Like there has to be a moment, water baptism is a perfect picture of what actually happens, but you don't have to be water baptized for this to have already been true in your life, that there has to be a moment where you came to the realization that you were a sinner, that you fell short of God's glorious standard. 
And then we have to come to Jesus, the only answer for our sins, and say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I believe that what you did on the cross was to take my sins upon yourself, to nail them there, so that my sinful nature could also be nailed to the cross with you. That's where in water baptism, we're buried with Christ in baptism. That was your funeral if you've been uh, water baptized before. And raised to walk in new life. On the other side of it, you no longer have a sin nature. You still have flesh you're going to war against for the rest of your life. But you now have spirit to spirit union, connection with Jesus himself. We have to be born again. We have to become new creations. We have to lay down the sin nature and be raised to walk in new life in Christ Jesus. Why is it so important that you settle your identity up front, that you are a child of God, that you are a son or daughter of the Most High? Because you cannot separate identity from purpose. If you try to separate identity from purpose, you will constantly put your identity in the things you do rather than who you are, and that's going to become an emotional roller coaster ride throughout the rest of your life. And you're constantly going to be striving to answer this question of who am I? In Luke chapter 3, before Jesus had ever done a single miracle, before he had ever preached the single sermon at the beginning, the onset of his ministry, it says this in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Why was it significant that this happened to Jesus before he had opened any blind eyes, before he had preached any great sermons to the multitudes? Because before Jesus carried out ministry, he was already a son and the father already loved him. You need to know who you are as a son and daughter before you try to live out this life of discipleship. We need to settle identity on the front end of this thing. Number two, everybody say go to school. Go to school. So we're born again, then we go to school. I'm not talking about United Faith Christian Academy. I'm talking about enrolling in Jesus' school of ministry, a.k.a. become a disciple. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he said, Go ye therefore into all the earth and make converts. No, no. What did he say? Make disciples. Don't just get them saved and then leave them as infants in the Christian faith. Go and make disciples. And the goal of a disciple is to reproduce the master. That's what we're talking about tonight, is that you would progressively grow to look more and more like Jesus. At the beginning of the school year, or at the beginning of a school year right now, probably every teacher will hand you a syllabus and say, this is what we're going to go over throughout the semester, right? You guys have probably already gotten syllabuses at this point, or syllabi, syllabuses. Wow. Syllabi? Yeah, there we go. Uh, syllabi. And... Uh, it's going to tell you what your curriculum is going to be for the year. Your curriculum in Jesus' school of ministry is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of the Old Testament, all the epistles, the letters written to the churches where we stare at the life of Jesus until he becomes etched in our mind, right? We need to behold Jesus by staring at him and studying his life. Ken Helser, a man who's had a great... Uh, amount of influence on my life once told a story. He's a tremendous artist and comes from a whole family of artists. And when he was a young boy, he was trying to draw this picture of a little toy red truck that he had sitting in front of him. And his mother came over to him and said, Ken, if you want to become a good artist, if you want to draw well, I need to remove these from you. So she pulled away the pad of paper and the pen. And she said, I need you to stare at the little red truck until you can see it perfectly in your mind, even when it's not there. 
Because the key to be reproducing something or being a good artist is your ability to see it in your mind's eye even when it's not there. Why am I telling you this? Because when you close your, mind, your eyes, don't close your mind. <laughs> when you close your eyes in different circumstances in life, you need to be able to see what Jesus would be doing there. We need to have the contours of his face etched in our mind. How many of you guys got sunburned at some point this last summer? Anybody get sunburned? And those of you that didn't, how many of you threw on some sunscreen if you went to the beach or hung out at the pool? Why did we do this, right? Because we have confidence that if we expose ourselves to the radiation of the sun, it's going to have an impact on us, right? In Revelations 1, it says that Jesus' face, update your version of Jesus to what he looks like in 2019. There's a good definition in Revelations chapter 1. It says that his face shines like the sun in all its brilliance. Why am I telling you that? Because we have to have as much confidence that if we continue to expose ourselves on a daily basis to the presence of God, it's going to impact us. Right? Like when I expose myself to the sun, its effect on me is undeniable. But the one who's literally enthroned in light so brilliant that nobody can stare at his face without being changed. I need to daily stare into the Gospels where the face of Jesus is revealed to me until it starts to have an impact on my life. Check out this verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that's illustrating what I'm talking about. And we all, who with unveiled faces, meaning that the blinders have been removed, contemplate, which is another way of saying meditate or think about the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This verse is telling us that just by lovingly staring at Jesus, exposing ourselves to his presence, staring at the stories of his life in the Gospels, it starts to have an impact on us just by staring at him. That's pretty awesome. James 1, 21 through 25, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. How many of you know that there's mirrors, broken mirrors, contorted mirrors everywhere in society? Like, let me give you an example. One time when I was probably four or five years old, we were at a carnival. My sister and I went running into one of those mirror mazes. Anybody ever been in a mirror maze before? Or know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever been in a maze in general, like a corn maze, any type of maze? Okay, now imagine that that whole maze was made out of mirrors. So literally, like, every wall is reflecting off of itself. You're seeing, like, multiple images of yourself as you're running through this thing. And I'm a little guy. My sister is four years older than me. We didn't really get along until she basically left the house, so like 14 years later. And uh, so she took off, didn't care about her little brother. And all of a sudden, I found myself in this like hexagon or octagon shaped room. And panic started to set in. When panic starts to set in, you don't really think rationally. And I started to like walk around, touching the different walls in this mirror maze. And I had completely convinced myself that there was no out. Like I literally thought that some other type of mirror moved in and had shut me off. And I started to just oh, get like really freaked out. I'm looking at all these different mirrors and it feels like there's no way out. And eventually I did what every little kid does. I just started crying out for help, right? Good idea when you don't know how to get out of a place. And my father ran into the room and he grabbed me by the hand and he knew the way out and he began to lead me out of the maze. Society has broken, contorted mirrors that offer you an imperfect picture of what you actually look like. 
And sometimes what we need to learn how to do when we find ourselves trapped in the maze of life, looking at a bunch of images that don't really reflect who we were really made to be is yell, help father, let him grab us by the hand and pull us out of the room. Understand what I'm saying? Social media is a broken mirror. Social media is like one of those mirrors you ever stood in front of one where all of a sudden it makes you look like oblong or like an hourglass shape. And then you see in front of the next one, you got like a tall skinny head and you're like, don't really look like that. You know, like ever stood and gone into a bathroom where they have fluorescent lights and all of a sudden just like features in your face that you've never seen before. Like, oh, is that what I look like into the world? Society is full of broken and contorted mirrors, especially because when other people who aren't self-confident in who they are and don't rightly reflect the image of God, will tell you how they see themselves rather than what you actually look like, right? But what this scripture is saying is that this is the only perfect mirror you have. And when you stare at this, you're reminded of who you were made to be, who you were created to be, that you were made to look just like Jesus, all the way from Genesis 1, because you were made in the image of who? God. And what does Satan work overtime to do? To convince you that you'll never look like him again. But Jesus came to rescue those with broken, shattered, poor self-image that they could know. And it was always God's plan to make them look just like him. Heroes form blueprints. I know we got a lot of basketball guys in the room. Probably this whole world. You guys all play basketball? Who, who's like your favorite player right now? Who's, who's like the stud? I don't watch basketball too much. KD? Okay, that's safe. Okay. KD, maybe Steph Curry. Uh, in my day, there was like, there, who? Oh my gosh. He's even from this region. In my day, there was not multiple answers being thrown out. RJ, in the 90s, who did everyone want to be like? Michael Jordan, right? So what did we all do? We bought Jordan sneakers. They weren't nearly expensive, as expensive back in the day. We bought Space Jam. Uh, we tried to craft our game like Michael Jordan. We definitely didn't have ups like he did. So what we did is we set the rim at like six, seven, or eight feet tall, and he took off from the crack that was probably like four feet back from the rim, and you still tried to hit that pose, right? Like spread legs, like you were about to slam dunk from the free throw line, right? Because we wanted to be like Mike, so he became a blueprint for us. He was our hero in sports, and therefore he became a blueprint of how we wanted to craft our game. And this is true regardless of if you're an athlete or not. If you are into theater, then you probably have actors or actresses, or if you're into music, you have favorite recording artists and you try to learn from them you don't mimic them or copy them but they become a type of blueprint or a template that you want to craft your game or your skill set after i'm here to tell you that jesus needs to get restored to the number one place of being the number one hero in your life so he starts to form the blueprint of how you live in every area of your life not just on sundays and wednesdays or during chapel but that jesus would become the blueprint for your life the model for your life as he becomes your hero we're talking about, again, just to bring it back to what this category is. This number two is go to school, the seminary of life. No true disciple can skip the seminary of life. And the school that you're enrolled in as a disciple of Jesus includes both lecture and lab. This will make a lot more sense when you get to college, but you're going to have some five credit classes that are going to have a lecture portion where you're going to sit in class and hear someone talk to you like I'm doing right now. Probably going to be a lot more boring, I hope. And, you know, it's going to be about three hours a week. And then you're going to go into the laboratory and you're going to actually try out the stuff that you heard about in the lecture. We all understand this, whether we've done it or not. But the important thing is that out of the lecture hall comes theory, but out of the laboratory of life comes empirical evidence. Like you need both in your Christian life. You need to get together in Bible studies. You need to get together in prayer gatherings. You need to get together with your youth group and on a Sunday morning and hear what pastors and teachers and evangelists are sharing with you 
But then you need to take the stuff and apply it to the laboratory of life and figure out that the gospel really does work in the real world. That's where faith gets fun. Like, go pray for somebody with crutches. Go share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Go pray for somebody who's discouraged or depressed and watch the gospel do what it was intended to do. Because anybody can argue with somebody who just has an opinion, but once you have empirical evidence in your life, it's hard to argue with a man who's had an experience. Why were some of the original eyewitnesses of Jesus' life hung upside down on crosses, burned at the stake, and had their heads cut off? Because they themselves had seen with their own eyes the fruit of a life transformed by the gospel and nobody was going to talk them out of it. Their lives were branded by eternity and there was nothing you could do in space or time that were going to separate them from their eternal purpose of looking just like Jesus and raising up a generation in their day that would also stand up to look just like Jesus. It's easy to talk people out of ideas because for most of us, we've only taken it to these type of church settings and we need to really get serious about living lifestyles saturated by the gospel. So we have our own testimony of the Lord. In Revelations, it talks about they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, it was their own story that made them unshakable, unwavering in the faith. To see a bold generation that will stand up confidently as an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus, we need empirical evidence, which means we need to take what we've heard and put it into our lives. Number three, everybody say, pass the test. Pass the test. There's two types of tests in life. The first one is temptation and the second one is life itself. So in that first part where we talked about being born again, Jesus right on the tail end of coming out of the waters of baptism is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he neither eats nor drinks for 40 days. And then the devil throughout this time begins to tempt Jesus. And on the front end of every one of those temptations, the first thing he tries to do is make Jesus question his identity. If you're truly the son of God, then whatever, whatever, whatever. If you're truly the son of God, then whatever, whatever, whatever. What's significant about the timing of this? It happened on the tail end of one of the most significant spiritual events of Jesus' life. Literally, the heavens were open. The audible voice comes from heaven and speaks over Jesus. You're my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And immediately, immediately on the heels of that, the enemy's trying to talk him out of his identity. Why am I sharing this with you? Because I've seen it happen so many times that kids come off of youth camps and spiritual retreats. And they have awesome encounters with the presence of the Lord. They make commitments. They make decisions about how they're going to live differently when they come back. And as soon as they get home, they start getting talked out of the decision they made. And the enemy starts going to work immediately about whether the experience they had was real or significant enough to really last. Anybody ever been there before? I, I've seen it happen like so many times in youth ministry and so many people. And what's sad is that. You know, for a lot of us, it happens like every year we get like this rejuvenated camp high if you're part of a youth group that goes away or a spiritual thing. And this happens like, and then we go up on these waves like this, and then we get to our adulthood, and we just believe that it's not meant to be sustained, which is such a lie from the enemy. So we start to speak that backwards into a generation rather than saying that type of spiritual high you were living at is supposed to be your normal, and your trajectory in Christ is only supposed to go up. We need to learn how to overcome the temptations of life. And it's really as simple as saying no. Why was Jesus able to say no the three times that the devil came to him? Because he'd been practicing, practicing saying no to his flesh for 40 days when he was pushing food away, when he was pushing away the desires of his flesh. He had gotten really good at saying no. And I think as a generation, we need to get good at saying no again. 
Like all the ladies in the room, on the count of three, I just want you to shout no. One, two, three. No. Come on, again, there's power in your no. One, two, three. No. Guys, you need to have the same power in your no. One, two, three. No. One, two, three. No. Didn't something about that just feel good? Like it feels amazing to say no. Sometimes yes feels fun. Sometimes yes will make everybody like you, but yes will lock you out of your destiny if you give yes to everything. Because it weakens your yes. Every time you give out a yes, you're taking power away from something else you could be reserved for, right? I'm not saying like you, it's yes and no to get into your destiny. But we need to learn how to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. And there is something so liberating about being able to say no, even to just like something you don't want to do. And just not being a people pleaser anymore and just saying, no, I don't want to do that. And then not thinking about it again, not letting it like plague you all night. Am I missing out on something? Because I think FOMO is sucking so much life out of this generation. You can never be present anywhere and it's killing your relationships. You guys know what FOMO is, right? Like the fear of missing out. You're with one friend and you're afraid that there's something better going on outside of there. So you're giving like half your heart to your friendship. Meanwhile, you're wondering if someone else is having a better time out there. And how much do we do that with God? Where we've got one foot in the gospel and one foot in the world and we think that's living, that's dying. That's a lukewarm existence. You can't live in that in-between space. The devil loves the fence. I'm sorry, but I'm like a provoking preacher. I don't know if there's a title for this, but I said my calling in life is to provoke people to want more of God and to just be honest that there's a line and we need to decide which side we're going to stand on. Like, are you with him or are you against him? The devil loves when we live in the middle and we don't make up our mind. Where we think, I want to give all the best years of my life to the Lord, but I'm also afraid that if I do it, I'm missing out on something better. Lie. I promise you, all the schemes and the tactics of the enemy are rooted in one thing, to steal, kill, and destroy everything God has intended for you. But Jesus is the good shepherd, and he came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Got to get to the place where we know what to say no to and what to say yes to. The next... uh, Test of life is, is just life itself. When life hands you circumstances that feel like they couldn't be from God, right? Anybody ever been there before? Like sickness, uh, you know, financial difficulty. Maybe it wasn't for you, but for your parents. You watched them go through something. Good people suffering with real world problems. And we start to say, if God is really good, how could this be happening to me? But it's the chisel of life circumstances that God uses to mold us into who he's calling us to be. One of my favorite teachers, his name is Graham Cook, shared a story one time. He would go around kind of in settings like this, except for people would pay money to come hear him teach. And at every city he would travel to, there'd be three guys sitting on the front row of all things, how ironic is this, that would come just to heckle him. And then after the meeting was done, they would write terrible reviews and say that he was a heretic, that he was a false teacher. But these guys were paying money to come just to slander this guy. And Graham was like losing his mind. He's like, I'm not even sure how to pray about this. Like, you know, surely this is an attack from the enemy. And then he went into like this vision where he's sitting on the father's lap in the throne room. And he sees in front of him these uh, arms, but he can only see them from the elbow down. Like he can't see the body they're attached to. And they're just going to work on this statue. And the father says, Graham, do you like what they're making? And he goes, yeah, it's beautiful. And he goes, well, if you'd like to see them complete it faster, encourage them in their work. So Graham starts yelling out, you're doing awesome. You're doing a great job. Oh, it's beautiful. I can't wait to see it finished. Come on, guys. You're doing a great job. And they're just chiseling away at this. 
Just going at work or doing work on this thing. And finally it's done. And the father says, Graham, do you like it? He goes, oh, it's wonderful. He goes, well, do you want to know what it is? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, it's you. And he goes, would you like to see who's been working on it the whole time? He goes, yeah. And all of a sudden, these elbow down, like pieces of the arm that he could see working on it the whole time, turn into full bodies. There was the three guys who were sitting on the front row the whole time. That what he thought was an attack from the enemy was something God was using to chisel Christ-like character in him. There are people who are planted in your life right now that you feel like are a thorn in your side, that are set to agitate you, but God is actually using them to form Christ-like character in you. Because how many of you know that if you just stayed locked away in your bedroom all the time, you might think you're patient? Like if you never had to deal with somebody who's rude, you might think that you're kind. Like if you never had somebody who hurt you really bad, you might think that forgiveness is easy as a concept. But it's not until you're tested by life's circumstances and that chisel comes to start etching away things that aren't supposed to be on your frame if you're going to look like Jesus. That you find out what you're really made of. So sometimes we want to rebuke all that stuff in our life and what we really need to do is submit to God's plan and say, God, my primary goal is to look more like Jesus. So everything in my flesh wants to lurk out right now and react to this and be angry about what I'm going through. But rather, I will choose to praise you even when I don't understand what's happening. I will choose to respond like Jesus would respond in this circumstance. It might mean biting your tongue sometimes, right? We said be an example in what you say. I think that verse also means in what you don't say, right? In the way that you live, in the way that you love, in your faith and in your purity. That these things stay constantly in front of your mind as we stare at Jesus and say, I will not respond out of the character you are trying to form in me, which is Jesus Christ-like character. I invite you to think about right now, I wonder if there's any circumstances, any situations in your life that you've been misinterpreting that God has actually sent to test you, to chisel away something in you, to make you look more like Jesus. And if your response has been anything other than what it should be, then we can just turn our hearts back to God and we can say, no, I give myself again to your primary purpose of making me look more like Jesus. The last part of this, and this is maybe my favorite part, Alex, you can actually come back up if you don't mind, is that we get sent out. Everybody say, get sent out. Get sent out. Get sent out. John 20, 21. My wife really tells me I'm not allowed to call Bible verses my favorite because I say like, 90% of them are my favorite, but they're all good. John 20, 21. Jesus speaking here. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I'm going to say that again. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus is saying this to his group of disciples, all but Judas, who left their careers their families, their homes, everything they knew and were comfortable with, all the ambitions and goals they had behind, to follow Jesus for three years, to watch who had become their best friend, their Lord and their master get crucified, raised again three days later. They had enrolled in the school of ministry. They had submitted to his plan even when it didn't make sense. They had overcome many temptations and fallen to many other. And yet Jesus had restored them each time in love. But now he's saying... It's time for you to be sent out. Like, 
I love this huddle that we have going on, but the purpose was to raise up people who look like me who can now take my image into the world and give everybody else a taste of what God in man is really like. I prayed this verse when we first got together the other morning, and this is just to remind us, I'm going to read it again, of how Jesus was sent out. These were some of the first words ever out of Jesus' mouth as he began his earthly ministry, which means they have great weight and significance. Jesus speaking and quoting the prophet Isaiah out of Isaiah 61 said in Luke 4, 18 through 20, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now take those same verses. Jesus' banner statement about why he had come. And read John 20, 21 again. As the Father sent me. How did he send Jesus? To proclaim good news. To set the captive free. To open blind eyes. To declare that, the, declare that the year of the Lord's favor is upon us. And that the oppressed will be set free. He's saying, as I was sent, so now I'm sending you. One of the most convicting verses in the Bible to me is when Jesus is talking in John 14 about how he's getting ready to go back to the Father. The disciples can't immediately, one day they'll come with him where he is. But they can't follow immediately. And this must have come as such a shock to the disciples who had their own plans for what Jesus was supposed to fulfill in their lives. And they're so confused. And everyone's saying, how can we follow you? We don't even know where you're going. This is all you know, so hard to understand. And Jesus says something that is so shocking. He says, it's actually better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that if Jesus was physically standing on the earth today, and let's just say we'll put him back in his Jewish context, he's in the city of Jerusalem. Well, if you don't have a couple thousand dollars in your bank account to fly to Jerusalem today, you're not in a great place because you can't get to the physical, tangible Jesus. But because he ascended to the Father, when he ascended, he went higher than every rank, every ruler, every leader, every name, both angelic and demonic in the earth and above. And he took the title of the name that is above every name. But then he sent, not a portion, but the fullness of who he is in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he said, I now live in you so that you can be sent in the same way I was sent and take my message Take my life, take my healing power to people who need my touch in South Park, in Charlotte, in Kannapolis, where I do ministry, in, in Hong Kong, wherever there are people who are called by the name of Jesus, I need you to be the sent ones. And we're still able to talk about this 2,000 years later because some people decided that this message was so important they'd give their whole life to. Jesus is looking at a generation and he's saying, where are the ones who will be called the sent ones? Where are the ones who will take the message of my unfailing love to their friends, to their schoolmates, to their neighbors who desperately need a touch from God? You know, Jesus said that one of the signs of the end of the age 
was that the gospel would be preached to every nation. Do you know that in the next 10 years, for the first time in history, the Bible is supposed to be uh, translated to every language, every known language in the earth? I mean, I have like chills all over my body even saying that. For the first time since Jesus ascended to the Father, in the next 10 years, in your generation, the Bible, the gospel will have been translated into every known language. Meaning that one of the major signs of the end of the age that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth is going to be accomplished in your generation. When I hear that, I don't sit back and say, well, great, I'm so glad somebody else is doing it. There's something in me that like rises up and just says, I've got to be a part of this storyline. Like what you're calling a generation to, I don't care how small my part is, I'm going to play a part. I love this story, and I, I want to call a generation to be like this. Blind Bartimaeus. You guys know the story of Blind Bartimaeus? He's been blind since birth. He's sitting by the roadside probably as a beggar because he can't work. He can't do anything. You know, to earn a living for himself. And he catches wind. He just hears. He can't see with his own eyes that Jesus is passing through his village. And all of a sudden, something so desperate, feeling like this is my only chance. I'm not going to let this pass me by. He starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody who's just cool doing time with Jesus, just part of being the crowd is like, shh, shh, shh. Hey, 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 you're embarrassing yourself. Bartimaeus, be quiet. But Bartimaeus is like, no, no, I don't recognize what's in front of me. I might not be able to see it, but I've heard about it. Jesus. Son of David, have mercy. And the people are trying to quiet him down. He's like, no, you're not going to shut me up. This is a one-time opportunity, the greatest chance of my life. I get my sight back. Jesus, son of David, don't pass me by. I wonder where a generation is at that's so desperate to be touched by Jesus. That when he passes through their town, they're not going to be shut up. They're not going to be silenced by what's popular, what's normal, what's cool, what's trending. It's time to make Jesus go viral in a generation. And it's not going to happen through social media. It's going to happen through sent ones who sign up to go into the school of ministry to be discipled in every area of their life by Jesus. Who are going to pass the test and say no to temptation and yes to life no matter how pressing it gets. And who will say, I'll be a sent one. I want to be used by you, God, for the story you're writing in my generation. I want to give my life to eternal things, things that are going to have value in this life and in the life to come.